0: and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires the battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble.
1: We continue our studies in the book of James, and we've reached chapter 3, verse 13, And we're looking at uh, from 3.13 through to chapter 4, verse 6. And again, we've listened to David Shusey reading this to us. In this passage, James is speaking to a church which has some very real problems. It's quite clear that Christians in a church or in several churches were not relating to one another in the loving and harmonious way they should. All kinds of unpleasantness had seeped into fellowship or fellowships to destroy peace and community life. And if you cast your eye down the passage, you will see that James talks about disorder and evil practice, He uses words like fights and quarrels, and he speaks of worldliness and slander. Quite clearly, the churches he was writing to were divided and tense. Christians were at one another's throats. And so, no matter how eloquently their preachers were proclaiming the gospel... There was no way the gospel could win the hearts of outsiders whilst its credibility was being undermined by Christian practice. No, it can't go on in this way, says James. Things have got to change. Now, of course, any church will have its faults. It's unrealistic to expect perfection this side of heaven. But the world does have the right to expect the church to be different. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, by the love you have for each other. And when that love is absent, it's not the world which is to be blamed for its unbelief. No, it is the church which is to be blamed Blame for its hypocrisy and sham. Well, what's the answer to, to this? Well, says James, the answer is to watch your attitude. Your attitude is fundamentally evil, worldly, even demonic. Which are at, These things are at the root of this discord among you. And these attitudes cannot be allowed to continue, says James. They are wreaking havoc. A beautiful Christ deserves a beautiful church. And a church can only display that kind of moral beauty when it demonstrates amongst its members the kind of Christ-like behaviour which is appropriate for those who call themselves the body of Christ. So watch your attitude. As is always the case with the letter of James, the style in these verses is proverbial. The logical links between one statement and the next are not always very clear. So there are problems in interpreting these verses. But I I think there's no doubt the underlying themes that James is addressing. There's no doubt about the the basic structure of the exhortation he's giving, and so we'll divide the passage into two. We'll look at chapter three, verses thirteen to eighteen, where it seems to me that James is saying, "Watch your attitude to what you know, or well, watch your attitude to your brains." And then, secondly, in chapter four, verses one to four. I think he's saying, watch your attitude to your desires. So, first part, watch your attitude to what you know. You can see why I've given that kind of title to this first bit by looking at chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now, I think you could make a good case for saying that James here is directing his comments in a special way to the leadership of the church. Although, of course, all this has relevance to every one of us. Who is wise and understanding, he asks. You could render that. Who reckons himself to be a scholar, a teacher among you? Now, if you are in leadership, you have to display wisdom. And that's dangerous, says James, for there are two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from heaven There's also a wisdom that comes from hell. And do notice in these verses, he's not contrasting wisdom and folly, no. The sobering truth is that there is such a thing as demonic wisdom. A wisdom that does not come down from heaven, but a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. A wisdom that seems convincing and authoritative and scholarly, but which is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but by the evil one. Now, what could James be thinking of here in describing a wisdom of that sort? Could it be the elitist philosophical wisdom of Athens that Paul confronted, encountered, Could it be the occult kind of knowledge that made the mystery religions of that time so popular in the ancient world? Well, if you look carefully, the difference between the wisdom of heaven and the wisdom of hell does not lie in the content of the teaching. It lies in the attitude of the teacher. That's the remarkable thing. Look at verse 13. And James shows what he means by describing the lifestyle that corresponds to wisdom, the wisdom of hell and the wisdom of heaven in the verses that follow. First of all, negatively, here are the characteristics of the wisdom from hell. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. These are the two things which mark out this so-called wisdom. By bitter envy, he probably means that kind of obsessive fanaticism, that rigid possessiveness, that intense jealousy that so often feels threatened by other people's gifts and abilities. That kind of wisdom that defends itself against any feeling of inferiority by aggressiveness and I guess we all know what I mean when I say that. The poet Gotha said this when you are faced by overwhelming merit of somebody else, the only way to save your own ego is by love, by loving that which you admire and which surpasses you. But you see, the wisdom of hell is not content with the humble dignity of loving that which surpasses it. Instead, it envies. And that's where selfish ambition comes in. These so-called wise people are not fundamentally interested in the growth of the kingdom of God. They are merely basically interested in establishing their own power base, which makes them feel important. They're not interested in serving the church. They want to control the church. They want to get their own way, be proved right, come out on top. And says James, where that kind of wisdom is practiced in a church, you will have a classic recipe for disorder and every other kind of evil. This kind of wisdom fractures. It destroys It renders the church despicable. And the alternative? The alternative, says James, is the wisdom of heaven. Look at verses 17 and 18. That the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness he's stringing together here a number of adjectives to try to get into our hearts and minds a picture of the kind of attitude he wants to see pure not mixed with any false motives peace loving not spoiling for a fight considerate willing to meet people halfway Submissive, open to appeal, full of mercy, that's very important for when you do win the argument, you must not exploit or humiliate, you are concerned to lift people up. Impartial and sincere, no acting, no hypocrisy, never pretending to be what it isn't. Now these are the characteristics of a truly wise person. And if you have leaders like this in your church, you will have peace in your church. And righteousness, says James, can only grow in the soil of peace. Nothing will render the church more despicable, more quickly than this hellish wisdom. Nothing is more necessary for the peace and beauty of the church than this heavenly, heavenly wisdom. Now, I suppose many of us think we know things. Some of us think we're teachers. We've got good brains. Well, James is saying something very searching to us about our attitudes to what we know, about our attitudes towards our ability. And it's worth thinking about. It's certainly frightening to me, at least, to think that one can be a clever devil. Now, the second part of our study this morning comes in chapter four, verse one onwards. I've said there's civil war in the church. And why, says James, why is this so? It's because you cannot get what you want. And once again, for all of us, we don't have much difficulty in identifying with what James is talking about here. All of us have our own ideas about what should be going on in the church. All of us have our own preferences. All of us have our own ambitions. We all know which way we'd like things to go. We all know how we'd like things to be to make us more comfortable and happy with what's going on. The trouble comes when we don't all share the same opinions, the same, the same vision, the same preference. That's when the trouble comes. And when things don't go our way, so much depends on how we react, what attitude we adopt to that disappointment of things not going our way. Because such a collision of opinions and preferences and desires in a church among many people, can all too easily lead to division, to fighting. We can't have it our way, and therefore we resort to sinful, worldly tactics. We fight, we quarrel, we covet, all because we cannot get what we want. It's very strong language, isn't it? We will stop at nothing to get our selfish desires, No matter if we deprive somebody else, no matter if we hurt somebody else, we're going to get what we want. That's what counts. Long-term feuds, quarrels, arguments, verbal fights, those things become the bread and butter of church life when people cannot get what they want and they have wrong attitudes. Now, it's important to realise that those desires are not necessarily bad desires. Maybe a desire for a perfectly good thing. According to our own judgment, we may even think we have the best interests of the church at heart. But it's the way, you see, we go about achieving those desires which is wrong. It is our attitudes. And the right, the right thing to do when things are not going the way you want them. Is not to fight, but to pray. That's the right remedy for the Christian. When a Christian has a want, a desire that he thinks ought to happen, but it doesn't seem to materialize, well, ask God for it, says James. That's why our corporate prayer meetings and our own individual prayers are so important and critical because it is in prayer that those conflicting ideas and desires find their resolution you find it not by figuring fighting one another but through an emerging consensus amongst ourselves if we want what is right then god will bring it to pass if he does not well says james look at verse three When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. There's an important lesson here, I think. Prayer is not magic. Magic is an attempt to get what I want by supernatural means. Prayer is not getting what I want. Prayer is getting what God wants. And prayer is the place where my wants dissolve in the face of God's will. And that's what prayer is about. Prayer is surrender to God to request what he wants. And prayer is not about manipulating God to do my will. You see, prayer tests your attitudes. And James says it's possible to ask with wrong motives, not interested in God's purposes being done, but simply in order to get your will being done. That's what verse 3 is all about. And indeed, look at how James regards that kind of attitude, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James seems to be saying that the attitude which is only interested in my plans and the satisfaction of my desires, that is the essence of the spirit of the world. That's the very selfishness which rebels against God's authority and makes men and women his enemies. And when Christians adopt that sort of attitude, I must get what I want attitude. Why? James says it's spiritual adultery. You adulterous people, he says. Now the church is meant to be the bride of Christ, a submissive partner to him, anxious to please him, desiring what he wants. And you see, once any husband or wife gets into their heads that the fulfilment of their own pleasure, their own plans, their own wants is more important than their partner's plans and pleasure or wants, then that partner has the heart of an adulterer or an adulteress. Think about it this way. Mentally, he or she is already unfaithful to their partner because he or she is no longer thinking in terms of us, but only in terms of me. Well, says James, that attitude won't do It's worldly. We must be prepared to let Jesus as Lord overrule our desires. Say no. We've got to learn to say no to our desires. And if you find that difficult, maybe you need to look at your attitude and it must change. Often I imagine how churches kind of reacted to a letter like this for most of these letters would have been read out in the church congregation and if that's so imagine can you imagine this letter being read out and then I think about I wonder what happened then what was their reaction let's pray that our reaction may be led by the spirit of God watch your attitude Amen.